Uh, whoever produced the headings for the Bibles we've got in front of us, which Luke hadn't included in his original script for the book, was at least consistent. Uh, in Corinth is a good sequel to those other riveting headlines we've been looking at the last few weeks in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens. And it's accurate. You see how the chapter begins. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. That's where the action takes place this week. And the headline writer, um, well, you can at least say this about him if it is a him. He's accurate. You can't accuse him of sexing up the dossier, as they say. And he wouldn't get a job with a tabloid newspaper. The tabloids wouldn't settle for anything less than the gospel comes to Sin City, which would be accurate too. Because Corinth was a sleazy city, a seaport with sailors of all nationalities passing through, away from home, anonymous, and with all the attractions of a big city in front of them. And just outside the city, if you've been to the ruins of ancient Corinth, you'll know it, uh, there's the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. And there were said to be a thousand temple prostitutes cruising the city at night for trade. Corinth was notorious in its day for its immoral lifestyle. The the Greeks had a word, Corinthotomai, meaning to practice immorality. Uh, And uh, Corinthians, if they ever appeared at a part on stage, were always drunk or worse. They were a byword for uh, immorality. So there you are. You've got the, the gospel. You're in a city like this. You're on your own. How do you feel? I imagine it's knees knocking, full of weakness, fear and trembling. Well, that's certainly how the apostle felt. That's how he described how he felt. Not the knees knocking bit, but the in weakness and fear and trembling when he later writes uh, to the Corinthians. Uh, You know just how the apostle felt because we've all been there, haven't we? Though The question Luke wants us to face here is not how do you feel, Paul? But how did he do it? Because a few years later, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth and he describes its members. Don't be deceived, he writes, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And, and this is the punchline, and... That is what some of you were. So how did he do it? And when we look at the book of Acts, we realize he doesn't set up a soup kitchen or start a hospital or a school. He just, verse 5, preaches that Jesus was the Messiah. Luke's a brilliant writer. He doesn't uh, produce some crude evangelism 101 church planting, and yet he's not so subtle that we miss it. Look at verse 5. Paul devoted himself to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Or verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Or verse 11. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Preaching, testifying, speaking, teaching. You say, Hugh, it's all very well if we live in a Bible belt, middle-class suburbia, but get into a really tough housing estate and 
yes, but this isn't Bible Belt. Listen again as Paul writes to that church in Corinth and reminds them of where they came from. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. and not many university graduates. Not many were influential. You weren't in the positions where you could pull strings. Not many were of noble birth. That's not where you came from. See, if I can say it as a well-educated middle-class Englishman and reveal all my uh, blind spots and prejudices, we must stop patronizing others and developing mission strategies that assume the Word of God is beyond some people. We must stop thinking of God as incompetent and thinking His Word can only speak to some and not to all. I mean, Chris was a petty criminal... Uh, virtually an alcoholic. Uh, When uh, one of his mates was converted, started going to church, he he said to him, next time you go, because he got intrigued, he said, next time you go, could you get a ticket for me? It's an interesting way to think about it. He told me the first time he came to church, the nearer he got, the slower he walked because he was about to walk into some alien world. Well, we met, we got talking, um, we, we opened the Bible together and that's when I discovered Chris couldn't read. But he taught himself to read so he could learn the gospel. The, the strategy that Paul adopts is the, the only strategy used in Acts, get the word out. And see how thoroughly Luke stresses it. You see, Paul is the original tent maker missionary. And then the tent maker worked to support himself so he was no burden with his gospeling. Now often it's the only way into some countries. Now though, the jobs people take up to get into these countries are often hugely demanding with long hours built into them. Then, ah, well then, the aim was to do the minimum of work and the maximum of gospel. So you see, uh, Uh, The tent maker has got evangelism central in their sights. Uh, Look at verse uh, 3. Aquila and uh, Priscilla have come uh, to Corinth and Paul went to see them because he was a tent maker as they were. He stayed and worked with them. But every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks And when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. The missionary and the opportunity. Yeah, but if you see that, you've got to learn this other lesson as well, the the missionary and the opposition. Uh, Luke has got a number of lessons for us, um, and it's not much use learning lesson one about uh, taking opportunities without learning lesson two about facing opposition. See, the missionary sees the opportunity. The missionary seizes the opportunity by preaching Jesus and then faces the consequence. And as so often, it's opposition. No point in preaching Jesus and then whinging about uh, the opposition when it comes. Look at verse 6. When they opposed Paul and became abusive. 
And I always fool myself when that happens to someone else. I imagine that it's something to do with the way they said it or how they uh, related to people. And I kind of keep thinking that I'm sure I could say the gospel nicely enough that it wouldn't get opposition. I'm just fooling myself. If I pull it off, I've almost said it so nicely that it isn't actually the gospel. You see, look here in these verses. Uh, firstly, at, at human responsibility. See how verse 6 goes on. When they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest. What's he doing? Well, he's shaking the, the, the dust off him, so to speak, saying he'll have nothing more to do with them. It's a sign of breaking fellowship, but worse than that, it's a a warning of judgment. Here's how Jesus put it in Luke's Gospel. When you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town uh, we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. See, it's a sign of a warning of judgment. They've heard the gospel. They've rejected it. They will be held responsible. See how he goes on? Say to them, verse 6, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. He's picking up what the prophet Ezekiel wrote. Listen to this. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, when I bring the sword against a land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood." You see what Paul is saying here? Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. I sounded the warning. There's no escaping this truth. We can't afford to lose sight of it. It's actually the only way for evangelists to say, stay sane and have a sense of mission accomplished. Insofar as God has called us to be his watchman, and as Christians we are, you and I are not accountable for how our colleagues and family and friends respond to the gospel. But we are accountable for whether we've blown the trumpet and sounded the warning and told the gospel. Stop asking evangelists how many were converted. Do ask evangelists, did you sound the warning? I remember some years back when I was preaching at a, uh, lunchtime services like this, uh, I used to have a congregation, people would regularly bring colleagues every week to come and hear the gospel, and they never blamed me if their colleagues were not converted, but they would haul me over the coals if I didn't tell the gospel or I told it poorly. It was a great healthy pressure to preach under. It's on each of our heads 
how we respond to the gospel. I can't take that responsibility from you. You can't take it from me. It's on each Christian watchman's head to sound the warning. The uh, human responsibility. But, but notice this, the, the missionary's boldness. I love this next bit. Look at verse 7. He says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And then he says, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. I mean, can you imagine it? You know, a local church gets fed up with gospel preaching and he doesn't do the decent thing and move somewhere else. He starts a, a house church in the old rectory right next door. I mean, it's as if Ali uh, is preaching to us and we take no notice of him. And so he says, right, and he gathers the few people who've responded to the gospel and he leaves all souls and sets up a new church in Pizza Express. Well, that would rock us a little bit. Every Thursday you come here and you discover some of your friends are actually going off to Pizza Express. Worse still, you look at verse 8. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. A few weeks after Ali started there, I go and join him. Well, we'll leave all souls to look after itself. Uh, we're taking over Pizza Express and setting up. It's one of the boldest church plants I've come across. And the results are extraordinary. Nothing showed the urgency of the gospel message more clearly than Paul's leaving and preaching elsewhere. And verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. Don't be afraid. But I don't believe that God is the kind of God who wastes his breath saying something that doesn't need saying. So don't imagine that Paul never knew the meaning of fear. I take it God said don't be afraid because he was. I take it God said don't be afraid because he had almost taken Paul's own breath away to do what they were doing. But there's a boldness that trumps the fear. There's a boldness that takes place in spite of the fear. And that's what the apostle discovers here. Human responsibility, the missionary's boldness. Notice as well, God's sovereignty. Look, verse 10. For I am with you, and no one's going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. A reminder of God's concern for his servants. Uh, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, he says, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. Well, if ever uh, Paul needed reminding of that promise, it's now. And he is reminded, I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in the city. God has his plans and they won't be thwarted. Uh, I've got many people in this city. Faced with the opposition, the missionaries reminded of God's gospel purposes and how they won't be thwarted, so he goes on preaching the gospel. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. 
See, the book of Acts tells us great lessons that we, we just need to hold on to in today's world. The gospel is spread through doors closing. You say, hang on, Hugh, you've got that wrong, haven't you? Don't you mean through doors opening? No, no, it's spread through doors closing. Do you see at the beginning of the chapter, back in verse 2, Aquila and Priscilla, they turn up in Corinth. Why? Because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Yet renounce their visas. They've all got to go. The door's closed there. So what happens? They land up. Well, sharing a house and a job with the Apostle Paul. I mean, they're they're getting skilled up enormously in the gospel. The Jews close the door, and what happens? It it leads gospel ministry to the Gentiles. They have a riot in Thessalonica. They have a riot, riot in Berea. So Paul lands up in Athens. Tells the gospel there. They, they get abusive to him in the synagogue in Corinth, so he goes next door. And St. Pizza Express Church uh, becomes the, the church we've we got letters written to. It's, it's growing. Opposition can't defeat the gospel purposes of God. See, look at verse 12. Well, while Gallio's proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul, brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charge is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And just as Paul's about to speak in the defense, Gallio stops the trial. If this had been a proper complaint, I'd be happy to listen to it. But I mean, quite frankly, it's just you lot squabbling over names and words. Get out of here. And why does Luke bother to record it? Hey, because it means the gospel's legal and free. And the Roman authorities didn't have a problem with it. Well, they may not have done, but look at verse 18. He drove them off, and um, verse 17. And then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, uh, clearly the replacement for uh, Crispus, uh, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. I mean, don't, don't imagine he's too interested in fairness. He just wants them out of his court. Hey, but I'll tell you something. I don't know whether this is just sort of anti-Semitism as they turn on Sosthenes or whether it's actually uh, the the Jewish uh, um, synagogue goers uh, so annoyed at what's happening they beat up their leader who hasn't managed to bring a conviction against Paul. But here's an interesting thing. I mustn't push it too far because Sosthenes was a fairly uh, common name in those days. Um, But when Paul writes his first letter to the uh, Corinthians, it, it comes from Paul and... Sosthenes. It's not inconceivable. It's just typical of God that actually here's the second synagogue leader who got converted. Hey friends, the opposition can look very fierce. But God has many people in this city. God has many people in this city. And the only way to discover them will be as we tell them of Jesus. And then even the most unlikely we'll find in the family. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much that you are the sovereign Lord, that you call your people to yourself. Keep us faithful to our responsibilities. May we be those who sound the trumpet well and point people to Jesus as Messiah. For his name's sake. Amen.